Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. We're back with another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. And I'm Elizabeth McNulty. We're back with part two of the episode we started last time, Things You Don't Learn in Law School. And Elizabeth, you want to start out with another topic? Sure. I think that one of the biggest transitions for me, as soon as I pass the bar, you're given a lot of responsibility. You're in charge of making decisions in your cases. And that can be really overwhelming because you're making a lot of decisions every single day. Decision fatigue sets in. You're constantly questioning the decisions that you're making, if they're the right things to do, because, you know, a few weeks ago, you were in law school and then you were studying for the bar. So it can feel a little bit like you have imposter syndrome. But I think the number one thing that I've learned is trust your gut. There's a reason you are where you are. And it's because you have the you know intelligence to make the right decisions. And also, hopefully, you're surrounded by colleagues that can help you make some of those decisions. Don't be afraid to bounce ideas off of them and know that it's OK to ask for help or guidance on certain things. It's impossible to know everything. There's no expectation that you should have the answers to all the questions, especially in your first few years of practice. I think even the most experienced attorneys still kind of crowdsource for some ideas and certainly have questions on certain things. You shouldn't be afraid not to know something, but you should certainly seek out the answers to it and use what's around you to help you answer those questions. When I was a young lawyer, some of the most valuable information I learned was by walking around the firm and bumping into people, talking about your cases or listening to other people talk about their cases. I think a lot of people got hurt during the pandemic because we were all on Zoom. We were sitting in our houses and you could not have these happenstance encounters. It just deprived a lot of people of a lot of experience, I think. Yeah. You know, you don't want to get paralyzed by the fear of making a decision. But just because you have to make a decision doesn't mean you don't have support around you to help make it. John Simon, whatever case he's working on most intensely at any moment, Eric, you know this, Elizabeth, you do. He goes around and talks to every lawyer in the office throughout the period that he's working on it, if he's getting ready for trial or to take a big depot and gets their ideas and thoughts to help inform his decision about what he wants to do. And he has members of the inner circle. He bounces it off and other older, you know, seasoned trial lawyers in the community, you know, Alvin Wolf or other friends of his that he'll call. And, you know, just because you have to make a decision doesn't mean you can't get help or information to help make that decision. It's a really smart tactic that he uses, too, because he will ask the younger lawyers. And I think it makes you feel especially valued that he's considering everyone's opinion. So I think that that's something that all lawyers could kind of take a page out of his book and consult other people in his office. Don't necessarily just go up in rank. You could go down too and see what other younger lawyers think. I've been in so many situations with other firms and other organizations where groupthink does take root and it's dangerous. And it's similar to the confirmation bias where we're looking for things that confirm what we already want to believe or what our theory of the case is, our theory of how the jury will receive the evidence. I found, and I didn't know this in law school, it's like you're driving with one foot on the brake and one foot on the gas. And you're always saying, I'm going to try this, but you also have to say, will that really work? Is that really going to work? How will that blow up? A lot of lawyers forget sometimes in what they do. I'll see lawyers do things, and I'm sure I do it too. And I'm like, do you not realize there's a lawyer on the other side? <laughs> like, I'm going to respond to that. Have you thought about how I'm going to respond to that? 
And kind of pivoting from this topic, but related to it is how important it is, I think, to maintain creativity in what we do. Similar to what you were saying, Eric, I think it's important that you be able to try to maintain your objectivity and think of things from the other side's point of view. When you're about to try a case, if before you start, you aren't capable of getting up and laying out what the other side's opening or close is going to be, you're not ready. If you don't know what they're going to say and how you're going to respond to it, you're not ready. And you just need to keep an open mind about everything and don't become too rigid in your thinking. You know, as lawyers, I think coming out of law school, you kind of are trained like there's the law and there's cases that dictate the law and there's these rules and there's a way you do things. And if you get into a firm where they do things a particular way, you can get stuck in doing things that way. Take time to sit and think about creative or new approaches and solutions to issues. Just because someone, nobody you worked with has thought about a way to do something doesn't mean you can't think of a better way. Let me give you a hypothetical. Yeah. So you prepared for a case for months. You show up at court. It's the first day of trial. You're about to start the trial. And the judge says, Tim, and to your opponent, we're going to do it a little differently this time. Tim, instead of representing the plaintiff, you're going to represent the defendant and vice versa. If you prepare your case well, how well will you be able to represent the defendant? My counter question is like, how am I getting paid? Do I still get paid <laughs> if the plaintiff wins? But no, if I'm not ready like I'm sure not as well as they have because I've thought more about what I'll do in response to them. But if I'm not at least prepared enough to know off the top of my head all of their main points, then and I couldn't do what you're saying, that I'm not going to do a good enough job for the client I am representing. You know, there's tricks of the trade you learn from each side, I'm sure, that, you know, little like kind of jury nullification stuff you say or how you say it or how you ask questions that I probably don't have memorized like the other side does about how they do it. I'm sure I wouldn't do as well as a seasoned defense lawyer who's done it over and over again. But yeah, maybe I should limit that to closing argument. I would how, like how to well think, get up and yeah, that I could get up off the cuff and lay out efficiently. Here's really the problems with their case. And this is what you need to focus on and what they haven't proved and bang them out. Because if I couldn't do that, they're going to mop the floor with me. As far as creativity, I'm reading a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport. It's a 2021 book. And he defines deep work as professional activities performed in a state of distraction-free concentration that push your cognitive capacities to their limit. These efforts create new value, improve your skill, and are hard to replicate. And he contrasts that with shallow work, which is non-cognitively demanding logistical style tasks often performed while distracted. And when I think of creativity, there ain't no way to do that if you're distracted. It seems like that is poison to the creative process to be having emails and other things coming in. If you could both comment on how do you get to your best creative ideas? A lot of the times I have my best creative ideas in a case Either when I'm like doing something that's completely an opposite of practicing law, when I'm like sitting and having a beer with my brother, where we're watching a baseball game, something will pop in my head about how to do something in a case. A lot of times I have it when I'm listening to the opposing lawyer ask questions in a depot, figuring out what they're doing. And I'm so focused on that case and nothing else that I'll have ideas about how I'm going to respond to it and what I want to do in the case. I need to jot them down real quick. But usually it's when I'm not distracted by anything. I'm going for a walk. 
I'm sitting and watching some mindless television show that I'm not really paying attention to. And I'll suddenly think of like, oh my God, we should do this, this, and this. And when you're falling asleep. Yeah. Usually it's when I'm falling asleep and then I end up staying up for hours typing out, like I thought of the perfect entire opening argument for this case that's going to trial in a month. I'll forget it. And so I'll just like stay up and type it out, which isn't a healthy thing to do. I need to get a dictation or something to be able to do it more efficiently. I try really hard not to think about work while um, trying to fall asleep because I've found that I will get zero sleep. Like Tim, I think it's in those moments where you're not necessarily thinking about work, but it's kind of on your subconscious is when you'll have your best ideas, kind of when you're just doing other mindless tasks. Getting into kind of the nuts and bolts of what we do day to day in working up our cases, I think one of the hardest things to learn how to do, I mean, they don't teach you how to do it at all in law school, and I don't know how they could, is dealing with experts. In today's civil litigation, it is so expert heavy. I find it to be ridiculous so much of the time and what is allowed to be said or not said in a case where 12 lay people are deciding the case is all revolves around these people we pay to come in and say whatever we want them to say. And everybody knows you can go find an expert generally to find what you want to present in a case. And so much of, Elizabeth, you spend way more time on this than I do now, finding the right experts, credible experts who are experienced enough to be players and know how to testify, but not, you know, so experienced that they have no credibility. So much time goes into finding the right experts, getting them the right materials, having the initial conversations with them. You know, it's an adjustment to learn how to do that effectively. Yeah, it's something that can only be learned on the job, kind of trial by fire. And it is really stressful because it's completely out of my control, whatever this expert says. If they don't support the case, I certainly don't want to talk them into it because eventually they're going to be deposed and they're probably going to be talked right out of it pretty quickly. So I think that kind of finessing it a little bit is something that you learn along the way, kind of pointing out things that maybe they didn't notice and that can kind of lead them to where you want them to go. Letting them feel like they came up with the opinion, not you forcing it down their throat. Right. So that certainly comes with some practice and it's really difficult. And the only way you can learn it is by doing it. There's no preparation for it. Having the right tools in place, using some outside services that might help you find experts can be helpful, but it is also incredibly expensive. So you need to keep that in mind as well. For a lot of young lawyers, I think that that's you know, they're not spending their own money, but you have to think about it like it is your own money. You got to talk about it on the first phone call. You need to lay out some kind of budget or get some kind of budget, at least up to getting them through the depot. More generally, you have to stay on top of your expenses in a case in light of its reasonable value. Don't spend 50 grand and take 20 depots killing it in a case only worth 100 grand. You're not helping your client by doing that. They're not going to get any money. And so much of the costs are experts, right, Eric? I mean, how much of your time do you spend in a particular case, dealing with like finding an expert, getting them everything important, making sure they understand the issues, and then prepping them for the depot where they might try to start to back off stuff they told you they'd say earlier. Or where they reveal that they haven't done enough work or haven't thought it through enough. Yeah. And so that prep is actually quite often, unfortunately, and it's, I think it's because they're human beings just like everybody else and they don't want to put more time than less. I ask questions and I see them fumbling around and not knowing their material where they said, yeah, don't worry. I read that deposition. I read this. I read that. You ask a couple simple questions and sometimes it proves they haven't carefully read 
the parts, at least, or maybe most of the deposition that they need to read to understand it deeply. It's so frustrating, you know, before a depo or even getting ready for trial, you got to think about it when you're finding experts. Look, I'm going to be sitting with this person who's going to be holding my client's case in their hands at 10 o'clock at night in the middle of trial before I'm going to put them on and assessing, am I going to be good with that? Trying to do it pretty quickly when you're first talking to them. I don't think law students realize, and I didn't realize even when I was younger, how much time and effort goes into experts. No one talks about the money about experts. And like you say, you want it fast and good, right? And so the expert, like all of us go, you can have it fast or you can have it good. But, you know, and that ties into the money. So if you want it really good, you need to pay me to do more. And yeah, there's a lot of tension in there. And you got to deal with it up front and get some sort of deal. I know we can't be perfect. We can't figure out exactly how many minutes you'll spend on this or that. But we got to do our best at the beginning or else you'll get into a bad spot later. And make it clear, look, I don't want you to go doing anything that I haven't asked you to do. I mean, yes, review the materials I've sent you. But if I get a bill for 20 hours because you went and talked to someone, like something I didn't ask you to do, when I'm like about to settle this case, that's going to be an issue. So if there's something you feel you need to do on the case, let's discuss it. I'm not going to say no. I want you to be prepped and have credibility. But, you know, we need to be clear about what you're going to be doing and how much time is reasonable to spend, which then gets into what materials you send. Because you don't want to get caught where, you know, we've all deposed experts where we're like, oh, they didn't send you that and they didn't send you that. Oh, I wonder why. And you give them a bunch of grief about it. So you want to make sure you don't set them up to be destroyed because they didn't get stuff that's important. And then they feel like you betrayed them and they're willing to betray you in the depot. But you also don't need to send them a ton of materials that they're going to bill 20 hours on that your client ultimately pays for, hopefully if you win the case, that was totally unnecessary. So dealing with experts just takes so much time and thought. You don't learn anything about the money in law school. I don't remember a single word about case expenses. And so that's something you got to learn out here. Yeah. And you'll learn it quick. If you spend too much money on a case, you'll go, oh, this case is now unresolvable. My client is asking me questions about why we spent all of this money. And they're excellent questions that I don't know how to answer. I think all three of us have put the same general topic You know, I wrote dealing with opposing counsel. Elizabeth put professional skills communication. Eric, you have having a healthy working relationship with other people, including witnesses, judges, or other attorneys. This is very difficult to learn. And I mean, for some people, trying to deal with them in a professional way is almost impossible because they won't do it in return. So, you know, yes, extend professional courtesies. Your reputation is all you really have. So don't be unreasonable, extend professional courtesies and they'll be given back to you generally, but advocate for your client while trying to maintain a good relationship with opposing counsel. It's not just good for you and for them. It's actually good for your client. I heard at one of our seminars, Randy Kennard, who's a great plaintiff lawyer in Tennessee said, you know, he has a temper and I have a temper and he would, you know, go off on opposing counsel when they would do things inappropriate. He tried to learn how to cope with it, like never responding to a letter or an email right away. If somebody did something in a depot that he thought was totally uncalled for, he would intentionally take three deep breaths before he responded and the other lawyer saw it and appreciated it. And he said, you know, at the end of the day, it's not just good for me, it's good for my client. From the plaintiff's perspective, 
nobody likes to pay someone they don't like. You know what I mean? Like if they don't like you and you've been a jerk to them, that lawyer isn't talking to their adjuster or their client trying to get the case resolved. They want to make you go try it and beat you. We've all heard that phrase, don't get mad, get even. Yeah. And I think that dovetails really nicely with take your ego out of the mix when there's these contentious moments, someone else is pushing buttons and you can decide, do I want to go there or not? And it feels like I really want to go there, but you know, it's going to be unproductive. Yeah. I think this is a lifelong project of learning how to deal with that, to know that that would not have been productive. It might've felt good for a minute. And then you probably did more damage. Yeah. And then you don't have a good working relationship with someone who might've been salvageable. You don't know what that person's going through. They might be going through a divorce. Their kid might be sick or, you know, whatever. And they might be acting out in front of you. And it looks like they're being mean to you. And maybe they are. You know, maybe it's just like you're really, really meanness. Maybe they're just an insufferable jerk that can't change, in which case you're not going to do anything to change it. But the answer seems always to be keep the focus on the case. Take the ego out of it. Don't take the bait. Try to move the case forward. And there's nothing more distracting than rage. Nothing more distracting than just being furious at the other person. It takes your focus off of the case and you just run it through your mind for the rest of the day. That's it. That's it. If you take the bait, then for the rest of the day, you'll be thinking about how embarrassed you are that you took the bait and how stupid it all looked and everybody's yelling and those images and thoughts are now contaminating what should be moving the case forward. You fire off an angry email, which may be justified in response to an email. I stare at my inbox the rest of the day waiting to see what I know is going to be a ridiculous response back. And I can't get anything done. There's another side to that is like preparing the room. I think of it as preparing the room. A fellow named Andy Clark wrote a book called Being There. And he talks about the tuna. So bear with me for a minute. The tuna fish, they take off like rockets. Like it goes from zero to like a hundred instantly. And what the fish does, it swishes its tail first to prepare the water to set up a series of whirlpools and eddies, and then it steps into it. So in other words, it exploits its own environment. And I thought, this is interesting. This is like a metaphor for a lot of things we do. And for socially, I think you can make this room better. Like you walk into a tense room, you can walk in and you can feel tense and look tense, or you can walk in and just be cheerful. John is one of my exemplars for this. He walks in, how you doing? And he sits down, hey, you know, where'd you go to school? Talks to people, you know, hey, how many kids you got? Things like that. And this stuff used to seem to me when I was really young, is like, okay, can we get going with the deposition? Yeah. And now I understand this is social capital. They're way less likely to make a bunch of obstructive coaching objections because they like you and you just sit nice you, to them. They give you space. Right. And this is all, you know, basic Dale Carnegie stuff from, you know, decades ago. How to win friends and influence. Exactly. I think he has so many good ideas about, you know, go in and see the best in people and set this all up right. And it pays dividends. So on a number of cases where I thought it was going to be very contentious, I go out of my way to meet the other attorney. I'll say, hey, you know, we just filed the suit. You just added your appearance. Can we, you know, meet for 15 minutes at your office? And we sit down and that's exactly what I do. I just want to get a relationship going. Because you like to have the people giving you the most charitable readings of what you say and what you do. And it just makes the whole case much more enjoyable. Some of the most important relationships you need to be cognizant of are your relationships with court personnel. I think a lot of young lawyers don't realize, a lot of older lawyers don't realize it. 
Those in the courthouse a lot of times know more about the workings of court practice and procedure than you do. It definitely pays dividends to be friendly and be nice to the judge's clerk, anybody on his staff, the bailiff, obviously the judge. Remember their names. Don't ever be rude to them. They can help you in so many ways. And if they like you, the judge can tell that they like you. Are you suggesting that the clerks sometimes talk to the judges? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, just maybe. <laughs> It's so important to, you know, when you come in for a trial, if you haven't been in front of that judge and their clerk much in the case, you're about to spend a week and a half with them. The first thing you do is you go up and introduce yourself to the clerk and ask them how they're doing, try to find out a little bit about them. The same with the bailiff, because the judge can tell if you're nice and being respectful to their staff. It could make a difference in a close call. It makes the whole process so much more enjoyable. Right. You know, that kind of thing goes a long way to, you know, feeling like, you like practicing law. I mean, you might take trial ad, you might do civil practice in law school. You know, you can't be as prepared or good enough yet that you feel comfortable in taking a depot when the case actually matters or examining a witness at trial. There's not much to say about that other than get as much experience as you can, as young as you can. Go watch depots that your colleagues or others are taking, see what they're doing and learn. Go watch trials. It's the only way you're going to learn is by watching others do it and seeing different approaches and then getting as much experience as you can. Do you know the story of Charlotte Aldis, who is one of our guests? She's one of the best attorneys. Oh, she's in, in Texas, US. right? Yeah, Texas I know who attorney. Is. She started by doing what was available to hone her trial skills, which were handling traffic tickets. I think she's got a phrase, I was the traffic ticket queen of whatever county. <laughs> and she said, I did it hundreds of times. I walked in, I got comfortable in front of judges. And now she, in two months before COVID, she had three trials in which she earned $20 million verdicts in each one of them. Cases that like it's, we wouldn't take. She takes impossible cases. And that's how she got her skills is by going out and just learning how to talk in front of judges and get good at that. The only thing that's going to make you comfortable is time and doing it over and over. Being in the courthouse, talking to judges, taking more and more depots, the more comfortable you get, the better you'll get. Kevin and I at the office wrote an article, I think, in the Missouri Bar Journal and the St. Louis Bar Journal years ago with just kind of checklist of stuff you need to do for young lawyers who haven't tried a case and are worried if they're doing everything that they need to do to get ready. One of the first things you need to do months in advance is get a date from the court to get a pretrial scheduled and then get agreements with opposing counsel about when you'll exchange motions and limiting and responses any deposition designations and responses all in advance of the pretrial so that you can be organized and get everything figured out. You don't want to be arguing motions and limiting and depot designations on the first morning of trial when you're about to give your opening and then there's rulings made and you can't say half the stuff you wanted to say. Before any of that, review and organize the entire file. That'll tell you what motions you may want to file. Go back, check all your discovery responses, supplement discovery, get a very organized exhibit list with everything you may want to use. Do an order of proof about what witnesses you're going to call and plan when you think you can call them and schedule them. Issue subpoenas for witnesses. Prepare your experts and make travel arrangements. Meet with and prepare clients. Get your jury instructions done. These are all things that every trial we have, Elizabeth sees me, I write on my whiteboard, like all these things. And then I check them off or erase them as they get done. And all of that should be done well enough in advance so that two weeks before you've got it all done and you can now just focus on what you need to do in the trial. I have that checklist because it can get overwhelming. And I think for young lawyers, I can understand you haven't been through it before, much less many times. 
knowing, okay, these are the basic steps I need to do can be calming. So I teach a course at St. Louis University School of Law is called pretrial civil litigation. And the section that opens the most eyes is discovery. And I say, you can read the rule, but you'll never guess how this really plays out. And it's probably the least fun thing that any of us do is written discovery. It's awful. And by the time you're done with it, and I ask them what happens, and they think, well, you send out questions, interrogatories, and then you'll get back answers. And I go, wrong. Yeah, you get back <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> objections and no information. Anything that's important, you are going to have to fight about it relentlessly and file multiple motions. That's it. And you're going to have a judge that looks like that judge would rather vomit than hear this motion. Yeah. And so what do you do? And you have to figure out how to turn this unwieldy conversation into something the judge sees as a simple decision. It takes a lot of work to condense the arguments into simple yes and no types of issues for the judge to go, yeah, you're right on that, you're wrong on that, right on that. Okay, and that's the trick. Here's why I need it. Here's the part of the case that it matters. Here's what's gonna happen if I don't have it and they say X, Y, and Z and I'm left without any ammunition. I had no idea about that in law school. Now I'm teaching it. So, you know, my students are hearing it and they're looking like, that doesn't look like fun. I said, it's not. And it's getting worse. It is getting worse. Regularly, I discover documents that have been hidden that should have been produced. And I either never get them or I get them late and it's prejudicial. And a lot of it is, you know, courts don't want to deal with it. And I'm not saying this is just on one side of the bar that people feel like there's not really consequences. Judges don't want to deal with it. They're frustrated at both sides when you have these discovery dispute issues. Elizabeth, could you comment as to when you became aware of real world discovery as opposed to law school discovery? Discovery was something I started working on as a clerk here. And I started to realize that at the outset, we weren't getting any of the documents we were requesting. Maybe in med mal cases, we'd get the medical records. And, and that was about not it. Not all the medical records. Right. And, you know, <laughs> we sent out 30 requests, got maybe not a full set of the medical, and that was about it. And so, I mean, you have to do the meet and confer or whatever. But, I mean, you're probably not getting much more at that point, and you'll have to file a motion. So the key to those is kind of categorizing documents that you want and then putting whichever requests are applicable to those categories. That way you can go in front of a judge and be, here are my five categories yeah. of documents and here are why I need to get them. I have five things to talk to you about. Not like they didn't answer any of my 30 interrogatories and here's my 60 requests for production and we need to go through them. The judge is going to go, go work it out. And I get that. So you have to make it simple for them. Right. I mean, I've sat on motion dockets where attorneys are going through one by one and the judge looks very disinterested, generally doesn't have the patience for those kinds of things. What's frustrating about discovery is it's so delayed and you have to make sure that you need to send out periodic emails to defense attorneys about, well, I'm sure it happens on both sides, about getting discovery that's going to be supplemented or responding to your golden rule letter. It's just like constant communication with them because they don't want to deal with it either. Obviously, they don't want to give you the document. So it's something that you have to kind of keep the ball moving. It's your responsibility to get the documents. It's never ending. And you need to start quick before you end up in a position where your trial settings nine months away and you're starting to take depots and you don't have the documents you need, but you need to start taking your depots and you can't you know, take the depots and then later fight about getting the documents and, you know, the ship has sailed. I used to work on the defense side and there's another player in all this. That's the defendant. And if yeah. it's a corporation or an organization of some sort, 
you got to flog them along to get them to provide you the information. So it's not always the defense yeah. attorney that's doing this. Yeah, I know. Oftentimes it's the defendant's like, no, I'm not giving that to him. <laughs> so I'm sure it's difficult. Like, well, we have rules and I'm the one signing stuff that's going in front of a judge. So yeah, I'm sure oftentimes it's the defendant that they don't understand. Like, no, we have to produce. I mean, we can make objections, but they need to be reasonable. Well, I like to end on happy topics, but we're out of time. So we're going to end on this sad topic of written discovery. But Elizabeth McNulty, thank you for joining us. Thanks Been for having a me. Great couple of conversations. We'll be back next time with another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.